FM. So again, I want to thank you for joining me tonight. As we get back into this conversation, there is a content warning um, for those of you who are watching by YouTube. There's also a content warning for those of you who are uh, watching on Facebook. And now I'm also giving that content warning on my podcast that we will be sharing stories that have to deal with um, possible scenes of violence described as well as um, possible intimate assault. So before we get started, just make sure that uh, you don't have children in the room due to the nature of the content on tonight. So again, for those of you who are new here, this is Black Table Talk, a subsidiary of Daring Dialogues, and we come on on Tuesdays at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time to do our read-alouds. Our read-aloud subject tonight is from the book Black Women, Black Love, America's War on African-American Marriage by Diane M. Stewart. This is a a well-researched topic, and so I'm excited about us continuing and getting into this topic. And we are in chapter one which is talking about jumping the broom, racial slavery and America's roots of forbidden black love. We are now getting ready to go into some of the stories from our ancestors, from women who actually endured and went through. Um, Oftentimes we tend to not really pay attention to oral history, but we have Some of this oral history is coming through actual testimonies of women who stood trial for whatever reason, or even from their mates who stood trial for whatever reason, to give an account of what happened um, that caused them to commit crime or commit whatever violence it was at the time. And so as we read some of these uh, stories tonight, we're just going to take about maybe 15, 20 minutes to read through. And then I'm going to open it up uh, for those of you who are on Facebook Live. I'm going to open it up for response to the reading. Uh, We'll finish up probably about 6.40, 6.45. And then I'll see you back hopefully next week for another installment of this conversation. Again, the book is Black Women, Black Love by Diane M. Stewart. I encourage you to get the book. I encourage you to invest in it. Uh, She is an African-American writer. Um, and well-versed in her subject area. So the first story is entitled, I struck him with a stick until he was dead. Celia's story. The privilege of autonomy and self-ownership will not allow many readers to imagine how 19-year-old bondswoman Celia must have felt when ushered into the Callaway County, Missouri Circuit Court on October 10th 1855 to face charges for killing her serial rapist. Perhaps her mind rested upon her first uninvited encounter with Robert Newsom, the then 60-year-old Virginia transplant and recent widower. Again, we are having we are listening to these testimonies from enslaved women who actually went through the trauma and we, the only reason we have some of these testimonies is because they gave it in court, and so it was reported. Newsom had traveled about a day's distance from his Missouri homestead in Callaway County to Audrain County to purchase her, and already on the 40-mile ride back to his farm, 
he had sexually assaulted this her as a 14 year old adolescent so when she was first purchased on his way back from purchasing her he began sexually assaulting her it was the first of many such episodes that would plague her five years of bondage on his estate confronted by accusers in the courtroom celia must have centered her thoughts on both her living and her expected offspring each of whom shared the same blood with her assaulter She was pregnant with her third child. She could only guess what future her other children had in store. She probably agonized a thousand times or more about whether it was the act of disposing of her 65-year-old abuser's body by fire that had been her fatal error. Under questioning, she reportedly confessed that, quote, as soon as I struck him, the devil got into me and I struck him with a stick until he was dead and then rolled him in the fire and burnt him up. Truth be told, it was black love that had gotten into her. She had found neither sympathy nor support from the members of the Newsom family she had approached for help. Following her boyfriend George's refusal to share her with their master, Celia warned Newsom not to force himself upon her anymore. It seems black love had finally inspired her with courage to resist her assaulter's actions at any cost including his life and inevitably her own. To the all-white male jewelry, her act of self-defense was no different from murder. The fact that she was sick and expecting to bear Newsom's third child when he insisted on assaulting her for the umpteenth time on that dreadful night of June 23, 1855, mattered not one iota. It was further adjudicated that Celia had no right to defend herself at all. Within a day, 12 citizens of the state of Missouri, many slaveholders themselves, sentenced Celia to be hanged by the neck until dead on the 16th day of November, 1855. Following a November 11th escape from jail, where she awaited her state execution, Celia was returned to state custody several weeks later to face punishment. She was hanged to death in Fulton, Missouri on the 21st day of December, 1855 at 2.30 p.m. Her boyfriend, George, was not there to see it, having come under tremendous suspicion of aiding Celia in the killing and the disposal of the body, he had fled the Newsome estate in the aftermath of Celia's imprisonment. Celia's story is central to understanding the foundations of forbidden love, black love in America. Her experience as a victim of ritual assault during her enslavement who acted in self-defense is incomplete without accounting for her love and desire for George. She was an enslaved black woman who harbored the ambition to freely choose a black man as her lover and her life partner, both of which were taken from her. Although thwarted by the role, the culture, and the psychology of intimate assault played in America's slavery prohibition and the prosecution of black love, that she decided to eliminate her owner and violator places on record the length to which at least one enslaved black woman was willing to go in order to experience love and satisfaction with a black man of her choosing. You had to court on the sly in that day in time. Most black women were not as sensationally heroic as Celia or as tragic as Margaret, though almost all suffered sexual and reproductive assaults of some kind, 
whether physical, psychological, emotional, or verbal. From the dawn of colonial settlement, black enslaved women were valued for their quote-unquote increased potential. Their childbearing bodies fueled the industries and wealth of white slaveholders who conceived short and long-term investment plans based upon the expectation that natural increase would quote-unquote swell their slave holdings. This was true even when the slaveholder himself fathered the children with his black female chattel. Particitir ventrum, or progeny follows the womb, declared all children of enslaved mothers the shadow property of their owners as early as 1662, protecting the, white, the right of white slaveholding fathers to keep in bondage their mixed-race children that they sired with enslaved black women and girls. Now, a lot of people don't seem to understand the implications of this. It allowed the white male slaveholder to continue intimate assault while still maintaining the power of birthing out more workforce, essentially. So he could do this and continue on um, with his own desires. But on the flip side of that, if a black enslaved man was with a, a white female owner, those children were considered free. Okay, go look that up, 1662. Ultimately, it didn't matter who impregnated her. The enslaved woman's womb was a capital asset that the slaveholder could rely on in his wealth building plans. I'm gonna say that again because some people don't realize they're still being used as a capital asset. The enslaved woman's womb was a capital asset to the white slaveholder who could rely on her womb in his wealth building plans. Virginia planter William Getty's 1816 Last Will and Testament discloses the value slave owners placed on bond women's fertile wombs and how those wombs actually dictated gender-based patterns of separation amongst enslaved couples and families. He says, I loaned to my beloved wife during her natural life a yellow girl sister and twin to the yellow girl now in the possession of Henry Smith, also a Negro man by the name of Charles, a blacksmith and the Smith's tools, also Charles' wife by the name of Eliza, and at the death of my wife, said Charles, the aforesaid blacksmith, is to go free. But his wife Eliza and her increase to be sold and the money arising from the sales to be equally divided into three parts. My son Edward Getty's children to have one part and my daughter Sally Smith's children another part and Elizabeth Lindsay's children the other part. Besides the forced work of increase, enslaved women faced long days of black breaking, back breaking labor. As one woman put it, quote, I had to do everything they was to do on the outside. Work in the field, chop wood, hoe corn, till sometime I feels like my back surely break. Her recollection is no exaggeration. 
Across centuries of a changing economy, black women in bondage cultivated and processed crops and dairy and tended cattle and other livestock. They also found themselves clearing the land of shrubs and bushes, especially during the early days of colonial settlement. The hoe became the symbol of their attachment to the tobacco, corn, wheat, and rice fields they tilled, and until mechanized milling of rice developed after the mid-18th century, the mortar and pestle also belonged to the enslaved woman. With this heavy dual component technology, they engaged their entire bodies from fingers to toes. Grinding rice in this way was such a hard and severe operation that it reportedly cost every planter the lives of several slaves annually. Scholars have distinguished rice cultivation from other cultivation methods for its reliance on African women's knowledge systems and organizational skills. Low country planters succeeded in harvesting the crop only because women from rice growing regions of West Africa possessed the expertise to ensure bountiful outcomes. So let no one tell you that they were unskilled. <laughs> Enslaved women of African descent governed the task system essential to the production of edible rice, often without interference from the white planters. Rice cultivation then arguably allowed black women spaces of sovereignty within the suffocating confines of shadow slavery. However, in the accounting of rice in women's lives, the balance should tip toward misery because the work was grueling. The task stretched the workday out until well into the night and the toll that the pounding of rice took on the bodies of the enslaved was so extensive that slaveholders took careful notice of the destruction of their human property. When they worked inside the homes of their slaveholders, enslaved women also executed physically demanding tasks of laundering, providing childcare, preparing food, and cleaning. Across such a wide range of labor assignments, monotonous and exhausting movement choreographed their regimented lives. Pushing, tugging, chopping, lifting, carrying, scrubbing. All these actions positioned enslaved women at risk for further exploitation. Subjected to these conditions, enslaved black women could never achieve respectable womanhood in the white American imagination. In fact, white people's irreverent views of black women first took shape when European travelers to Africa discovered that African women cultivated crops, produced food for their families, and marketed their harvests. Since very few European women were performing any kind of this similar work, European travelers alienated from norms and traditions of the people they observed often described African women as a beast of burdens, oppressed by onerous agricultural labor, even slavishly so under the brutish authority of African men. They likewise submitted commentary about African women's perceived physical abnormalities and assumed ability to bear children and execute arduous ag agricultural tasks without feeling pain. These fantasies about African women's laboring bodies had circulated across the Atlantic world through the extensive collection of tales and hearsay and they undoubtedly impacted the crude manner in which African women were subjected to the gang system of labor 
under the actual slavish authority of white men on Americans' slaveholding estates. By European and Western standards, African women were ontologically and irredeemably unfeminine in their eyes, and their status as shadow slaves only widened the chasm between them and the white women who owned them. Although Northern and Southern standards that define ideal womanhood accommodated new trends and beliefs across centuries, some expectations remained constant regarding feminine etiquette and decorum. What women wore, the labor they performed, and the spaces they occupied determined their valuable as either respectable or scandalous. Associated with domesticity and the privacy of the home, women were expected to be chased and clothed in public with very little to no skin exposed. Within this arrangement, black women embody the antithesis of everything desirable in a woman. As they labored in fields and farms and domestic spaces, enslaved women had to lift or tie up their long skirts and dresses to work efficiently and effectively. The actual labor they performed required them to bend at the waist, kneel on the ground, and spread their legs liberally to weed fields pit crops, scrub floors, cook, and wash. Thus, they manipulated even the clothes they wore to accommodate the extensive work of life. By the standards of the day, many enslaved women were inadequately and shabbily clothed, and when they were whipped, they were almost always stripped naked, naked sometimes from the chest down and sometimes entirely. Enslaved women lived, worked, and suffered the sting of the whip under watchful eyes. Even domestic bond women, laboring in close proximity to their taskmasters, did not escape the rigorous scrutiny of the slaveholding family that micromanaged their every word, gesture, and deed. Yes, there is a history of micromanaging everything that Black people say and do. It is true that some enslaved women were afforded the unsupervised privilege of working and marketing their produce in urban spaces, especially in cities like Charleston and Savannah. However, the typical surveillance of the slave state made most enslaved women's affairs public. Perhaps no ritual of ex exposure was more public for black bondswomen than the slave block, the quintessential site of the denuded black female body. These social gatherings attracted hordes across southern cities and rural villages, and when young women were advertised, as one Missouri resident recalled, crowds would flock to the court to see the sight. What they saw when they gazed at the black bondwoman on parade in countless compromised positions, they took as confirmation that black women were inherently socially unacceptable. Black women enslaved or free were assumed to be promiscuous and lecherous, yet unfeminine and grotesque. They remain objects of the white pornographic gaze, which could turn sadistic, especially when peering through the spectacles of medical experimentation and scientific study. Even as they valued black increase or the chattel that black wombs could produce, many slaveholders simultaneously circulated myths about black female promiscuity and sexual deviancy. While stigmatizing black women for their perceived hypersexuality, Southern slave owners also relied upon and required the black adolescent girls and women they held in bondage to increase their human holdings, thus 
In best case scenarios, they allowed and encouraged them to find mates of their choosing. This was not always easy, as the average bond woman on the U.S. mainland did not find herself on large plantations with hundreds of male counterparts, contrary to people's fantasies. The majority of enslaved women lived on smaller farms or properties with just a few other enslaved persons. Less than 1% of slaveholders in the South held more than 100 persons in bondage. And by 1860, enslaved persons in the South on average lived in groups of 10. For this reason, enslaved women such as Celia were fortunate if they even found a romantic partner residing on the same property as themselves. Like Margaret Garner, most had no choice but to seek romantic companionship with partners living on different plantations. Even on large estates, when bond women formed romantic relationships and marriage unions with men enslaved on the same property, agricultural seasons coupled with gender labor assignments often demanded separate living quarters for husbands and wives. George Washington, America's first president, and most prodigious slaveholder in Fairfax County, Virginia, established these kinds of distant living arrangements for close to two-thirds of the enslaved couples working on his 12-square-mile Mount Vernon estate. Washington saw to it that enslaved laborers lived near their workplaces to avoid losing valuable hours to long distances. Some would have to walk to arrive at their workstations. Consequently, most enslaved fathers at Mount Vernon had infrequent contact with their own children who were raised in the women's quarters. Hmm. Beyond the inconvenience of physical distance, enslaved women and their consorts could never anticipate how and when decisions from on high would eternally sever their intimate bonds they endeavored to preserve. Such an existence under the incessant threat of family fracture could drive thousands of Margaret's and Celia's to flirt with ideas of escape or violent means. Among the dozens of bond women the Washingtons owned, one of the most well-known stories, there's even a book on her, uh, you can check it out at your convenience, is about the story of Ona, a.k.a. Oni Judge. She was the personal attendant to Martha Washington, she actually absconded, escaped from the president's Philadelphia mansion in 1796. Ona's entire existence resolved around waiting on the first lady and fulfilling her every need and comfort. She had no time to even think of pursuing love and coupling for herself until after she made her escape to a life of fugitive freedom. Settling in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, Ona eventually married and had three children with her husband, a free black man named John Staines. After discovering Ona's calculated absence, the President of the United States stopped at nothing to track her down, even illegally exploiting federal resources to pursue and recapture his property. All of Washington's years-long efforts to recover her by persuasion and even by ambush ultimately failed. Staying one step ahead of him, Ona managed to protect her liberty though not without fear that the Washingtons and other claimants would one day succeed in re-enslaving her and her offspring and destroying the marriage and family she had forged as a fugitive from slavery. 
Margaret, Celia, and Ona's stories illustrate how irreconcilable their black female slave status was with the social freedom necessary to actualize a truly healthy love and marriage. Many Bonds women knew and dreaded the outcomes they would certainly face if they adopted the strategies of these brave young women. Instead, they delayed marriage or abandoned the idea altogether, preferring to minimize the wounds of slavery upon their hearts. And yet, we have a whole new generation doing the same. They knew all too well that they would remain married until, in the words of a former Georgia governor, it is the pleasure of their owner to separate them. So we're going to stop there for tonight. Yeah. I know. That was a lot. That was a mouthful. Um, But the point that's being made is in this country, there hasn't really been a time when black women have not been seen as someone's property. When our bodies have not been seen as someone's property, when uh, the children that come out of our womb have not been seen as someone's increase, it has never stopped. If you just look at the way that our country is run now, it has never stopped. There really hasn't been a break in how black women are hypersexualized. Now we just have people who have internalized the system of slavery and now we in our own community put black women on the auction block and do the same exact thing that was done during slavery except it's in music videos now same exact thing (laughs) so if you want to respond to the reading tonight and you have a camera you can click where it has the two faces or the two people down below If you want to come on and respond to the reading, again, we were reading tonight from Black Women, Black Love by Diane M. Stewart. This is a book that people aren't really talking about. It just recently came out, Um, but I encourage you to dig into it, especially if you are a Black woman um, and you're having questions about what is happening um, with marriage, with love, what is happening with uh, Black women's prospects. Why does it seem like we're going in cycles in terms of um, our relationships with one another? What's happening with uh, the psyche of black women? What's happening in the psyche of black men? It has an origin. These things that we're that we're hearing now um, in our community, the I would even almost say the blatant kind of propaganda that's out here to get black women to throw black men away and to get black men to throw black women away it all has a source and it's our job and our responsibility not to buy into the propaganda but unfortunately some people are so let's have the conversation I see I have two down here and I don't know that is it allowing me to I don't know if it allows me to add both of you it doesn't here good evening lady Barbara how are you good how are you I am good Good. this is 
it's just so much to take in and to even think about 14 years old being, you know, just taken away with no one there to protect you and you're at the will of an old man who only see you as property or not even just not valued at all and when you read this this book it just makes your heart bad because we like you said we can still look back and see a lot of it we know the root of the separation of family in the beginning because they separated family they went and took people who were women who were married took them from their husbands and families brought them over here then you come into a situation where you are violated, not speaking the language, and just work unmerciful, and your womb is an access. All you're good for how much you we value your womb, and that's all the value that you actually hold. Yeah, I mean their their womb was essentially in a in almost like a I would say an ATM. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, we, we could we could say they were considered an ATM or they were also considered maybe like an insurance policy. And if you think of, and if you think about some of the um, programs that have now been established, it's very much the same thing. Uh, it's not just connected to enslaved women anymore but it's just connected to children in general. So, yeah. It's, it's a lot. It's a lot. It is. Um, but we got to start, we have to start the conversation at the origins. And I think so many times people skip over origin, right? And they go to, there's no man in the home. Like, but let's go back to the origin of why there's no man in the home. It didn't just start, it didn't even just start 40 years ago. People want to make it as if it started 40 years ago, but no, this has been going on. We're just seeing, you're just seeing a different iteration of it in your generation. And I, and I hope that, like I said, people will get this book for themselves and, and go into the detail and the footnotes. Cause she gives lots of footnotes. Um, of sources that you can go back and read um, further for her for the points that she's um, recording and making. Yes. And so it's it's important for us to understand there there's an origin to how the black woman's body is objectified. There's yes. an origin to um, family how division. family division. There's an origin to even whether or not the sacredness or the sanctity of marriage was even respected when it came to our unions. Because he, the, 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 what is it? Slave owner could always, the man had, even if he was there, if the slave owner wanted his wife, you had to just step aside. You, you, there was no rights. You couldn't protect her. So if you tried that, you were physically abused. Or like we see in this story, how do you hang a woman? You know, she's pregnant. 
and she was protecting herself, but she didn't have the right to do that. So you hang her, and that came in my mind, and I know it's kind of, but you talking about pro-life, and, and you value life, and you hang a woman with a baby in her womb. Again, because it goes back to, do you actually believe what it is you're saying, or do you only value life in these parameters because if you say I value life then that means you value life from the womb to the tomb Amen. Amen. that means you value elderly life that means you value neurodivergent life that means you value disabled life not just the life that fits a certain social class or a life that just looks like you so it, it's a lot to unpack. Final final thoughts, Lady Barbara, because I do. Um, Pastor Ben, I don't see a camera for you. So you may have to go out and come back in if you're going to request to be in. I just always say thank you. That's why I try to share as much as I can because a lot of things I don't know. This platform for me is so educational and, 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 you know, valuable to our history and knowing the origin of why they say, oh, black men don't, they need their families. But they, like you said, there's an origin. You all set this up and designed this, but yet you throw, and that's, isn't it always the blame game? We throw it back someplace else, but you are the orchestrator of this. Yeah, I was telling someone the other evening, I said, what we what we are seeing now is on autopilot. You can't look at what's on autopilot and say, it's you guys' fault. No, this is on autopilot. This is on autopilot. That's what people need to know and, under, and, and, and kind of recognize. It's on autopilot now. But Lady Barbara, thank you for um, coming on. I appreciate you. And uh, we're going to see if we can get Pastor Ben in here. Pastor Ben, I'm going to try to bring you on. Hopefully. All right. Let's see. Hello. Can you hear me? Hello. Hello. I can hear you. Can you hear me? I can. I can. Great. Now, Lady Barbara hit on something that I was going to say because this pro-life movement thing, which I keep telling people is not really pro-life. <laughs> it's a control thing because you don't care about a living person. You only want to pretend that you care for the, a, a life that's in the womb. Mm-hmm. It's not done. And as you said, elderly or whatever, especially, and I'm gonna go there. Okay, you can call it, you can call it race baiting or whatever you want to call it, but I'm gonna say it just like it is, especially black and brown people, because for some reason we tend to be unarmed. And police officers have this this thing where they want to just come up to us and violate our rights, and when we say something about it, now all of a sudden you gotta arrest us because we stood up for our rights, and then when we refuse to allow you to arrest us, now we're resisting arrest. What are we being arrested for? Because we didn't, there was no violation to begin with. See, now at that point, now you want to pull out your gun and shoot us in the back and all that type of stuff. But that's okay because 
he's black, so he must have done something. Hmm. Yeah. But now let's talk about this white lady, this white terrorist in the White House that was actually trying to break through and come and attack somebody and do them bodily harm. And the police officer actually did what he was supposed to do. But now you're saying that he assassinated her. See, now, this is all twisted because you got people with twisted minds that think like that. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. Now, you got a 14-year-old woman or a 14-year-old child. They will call her a woman, but 14-year-old child. And, and, and pause there because, again, people are up in arms about Robert Kelly But yes. this was, that was normal everyday life, not just for one girl on a implantation, but probably several uh-huh. every day or every other day on a yes. plantation. So again, yes, exactly. when we, st- when we start talking about be- deviant behaviors, there's a root. Uh-huh. Yes, there is. But again, that, that's the that's the uh, thing that we call projecting. See, oh, it's our thing. We invented it. We started it. You know, we, we pushed it off on you all. You all are not doing it at the level that we did. But we're going to say that it's you. Yeah. See, I mean, that, that that's, that's, that's this whole thing. This is what continuously happens. Uh, like your boy Gates here in Florida. He want to bring Democrats up, pedophilia and stuff, but what has he been investigated for? A hot mess. The same thing yes. that the same thing that he was this one here was just put away for the hat. I think it's called uh, the Hatchet Act. Uh-huh. I want to say it's called the Hatchet Act, where you take a a, a minor across state lines so you can uh-huh. do something with them that would be legal in one state but not legal in yours. That whole, from my understanding, that whole law was specifically created for black males who were in interracial relationships. So the whole premise of that law was based on keeping black men away from white women or white girls. That's what they, that's what they used to convict him. Now, another thing, how is it that when you look at black women because of how they work, because of how they have to sit every day, uh, you look at them so negatively, but yet you insisted on raping them. <laughs> I mean, that's a that's a whole that's a whole another level of crazy. But again, are they ever going to examine? Why are they ever no. going to examine that? No. Why why would you insist on intimately assaulting someone you saw as not human? Mm-hmm. Because the re- because the reality is you knew they were human. Mm-hmm. And it takes a special kind of crazy to convince yourself after you have um, violated another human it takes a special kind of crazy 
to keep going as if you haven't violated another human being to create policies and laws that dehumanize them. Mm-hmm. And you did it to create another human being. Yeah. So you can, what, produce more property, which increases your labor force. Yeah. So if you can't see them as human, why are you having sex with them to produce more humans Right. for work purposes? Right. See, that's a whole screwed up type of crazy. Yeah, it, it it's a it's a very I have no words for it. Let me just say right. it that way. You, you, you really can't come up with any words. I don't have words for it, but what I do know is just like there are generational traumas, there are generational abusers. Yes. And so if we talk about the epigenetics of things or we talk about, because a lot of people talk about, you know, how trauma is housed in the DNA and it gets passed down from generation to generation. But y'all don't think some of this abuse and sadistic behavior has gotten passed down? I would venture to say it would. It has. And and we're wrapping up. We've got... We've got three minutes yeah. before I got to wrap it up. Okay. All right. But uh, people running up inside the Capitol to try to kill people, that proves it. Yeah. Where did that come from? Generational. If you go back through history, whenever they didn't get their way, what did they do? Generational. I mean, and literally, you carried the loser's flag into the space. To basically, basically say that your ancestors who lost finally Uh made it into an invasion of the capital. Uh Just want people to sit with that. Uh We've been trying generation after generation after generation ever since we lost to breach the capital. That spirit. And on January 6th, Was that 2020? Yeah. Oh, that was 2021. 2021? January 6th? This year. January 6th, 2021. So on this year... Just a few months ago. So on this year, that spirit that had come down generational lines trying to find a way in finally found a way in. Uh Uh-huh. So, yeah. Final thoughts, Pastor Ben, as we wrap up here tonight. Well, I got to go back to where I always go back to. Our people need to wake up. Because many of us are complicit in all this because of our ignorance. And because we believe that white ice is colder. Yeah. If you want to know what the phrase white ice is colder means, look up Dr. Claude Anderson's book, Power Nomics. He talks about the white ice is colder. Listen, I want to thank you all for your time and attention tonight. This is an ongoing conversation. We'll be back here on next Tuesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. The Lord says the same. 
This has been another episode of Daring Dialogues, Black Table Talk, and I've been your host tonight, Shantae Charles. If you're just tuning in, please feel free to hit the rewind and catch us on the replay. Feel free to leave uh, your comments down below. I do go back and read them. Remember, light is the most daring opposition to darkness, so continue to go out and be what, Pastor Ben? Light. Be light. Thank you again. Have a good night and see you next week.